Hey, this is Vivian Campbell, and you are listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to December and also your weekly dose of Focus on Metal. Holy crap, and full disclosure, it just took me about six tries to get that one simple lead-in right. Anyways, hope that you guys enjoyed last week's episode where we talked with Dave Manichetti. If you haven't heard that one, then you definitely don't want to miss it. You can head up to focusonmetal.net. Go to the episodes page and you can download or stream episode 482 with Dave Manichetti. Or if you're an iTunes fan, you can go up to either one of our iTunes streams and grab it there. And there's an RSS feed out there as well. And who knows where else it is. It's it's all over the place. But anyways, definitely don't miss that one. It is a great episode that uh, that you're going to want to hear. Uh, this week, got a pretty cool show for you as we talk to author Justin Quirk. So Justin is an author hailing out of the UK. And uh, a little while ago, he put out a book called Nothing But a Good Time, The Spectacular Rise and Fall of Glam Metal. Just kind of give you the little blurb out of uh, out of the publishing house. Uh, from 1983 until 1991, glam metal was the sound of American culture. Big hair, massive amplifiers, drugs, alcohol, piles of money, and life-threatening pyrotechnics. This was the world stocked by Bon Jovi, Kiss, Wasp, Skid Row, Dawkins, Motley Crue, Cinderella, Rat, and many more. Armed with hairspray, spandex, and strangely shaped guitars, they marked the last great era of supersized bands. Where did glam metal come from? How did it spread? What killed it off? And why does nobody admit to having been a glam metaler anymore? And the other way they just kind of put all this into one little category is they call it a cultural history of glam metal, where it came from, how it defined America in the 1980s, and how it all came crashing down. So, of course, a lot of that stuff is right in Richie's wheelhouse, and he sat down for a lengthy conversation with Justin, and not so much about the book itself, but you know, just kind of uh, going back to the author who's written a book about this subject and kind of getting to know his thoughts, his feelings, opinions, and really just having an entire chat about glam metal, the concept, and even more importantly, and, and the unique spin that uh, only Richie can put on it, is, you know, the book, as I just talked about, is really looking at America. And Richie's looking at it from the opposite way of saying, well, you know, what was the opinions of, of, of Europe and in Ireland and in England towards all of this as well? And why did it differ in all of that? So some really cool conversation between Richie and Justin this week. And also, before we get rolling here, I just want to apologize up front. Sound quality in this one is a little bit odd. Richie comes through nice and clear, obviously, because it's directly recording off of him. But sound over to Justin. You get kind of a little bit of swirl happening there. I don't know if it's bandwidth issues with you know everybody doing Zoom meetings and all that kind of crap these days or what. But uh, definitely a little bit of swirl. Tried my best to try to equalize the levels as much as possible. But uh, there is that. So in some spots, you may have to listen a little bit more carefully to all the good stuff that Justin is saying. But anyways, speaking of things that Justin is saying, why don't we kick it over to Richie 
and Justin Quirk talking all about nothing but a good time. Hello, Justin. Justin, hi, it's Richie here for the interview. Richie, how you doing? I'm all right. So, uh, is now a good time? Are you okay? Yeah, well, um, I'm just going to plug my phone in. So, uh, I'm actually going to charge the call. Give me one minute. So, how I found out about the book, you were on, is it a Word in Your Ear podcast? Yeah, um, and Mark Yeah, so I I'm a sucker for this sort of stuff, glam metal and all that. That's my wheelhouse, and um, so anybody brings out a book on anything like that, it always piques my interest. Um, but where I want to start with you, Justin, in this is you got a paragraph in the front of it about yourself, okay? And I'm I don't really know you at all. Um, the first question I have is, when did you write for Kerrang? So Kerrang was that was very very early on in my career. So they were one of the one of the first magazines I ever wrote for. So I'm guessing that would have been about 1998, 99. Um, and I was freelancing for them, and they were very generous. So I really just I hit them up on set. You know, I finished college, so I was trying to get into writing. I had a couple of cuttings under my belt. I've done a few bits of the Guardian. And I was just writing to anyone and everyone. Kerrang! is a big one on the list because I've read it obsessively as a kid. I mean, probably the first music magazine I used to buy every week. And it was, you know, on the bucket list. It was one that I really wanted to pick off. And I got in touch with them via a, a friend of my mum's, her son, I think was doing some writing for them. He gave me a contact. And um, Paul Reese, who's the editor at the time, or Peach Centre rather, very generously sort of took a punt on me and said, let's just come to the office and meet us. And I basically just said, look, I'm available. And I was, for about a year, year and a half, I was pretty much their absolute bottom of the ladder, third string, a live reviewer. So any gig, irrespective of what it was, who it was, that nobody else wanted to review, I'd put my hand up and say, you know, I'll, I'll be there. And I think at the time, you know, I was learning how to write. I was no great shape from a journalist. But a big part of it at that stage is, you know, showing up and being reliable. So when they were like, look, we've got some god-awful hardcore band are playing Sunday night at the Rocket, and we can't get free tickets, just pay yourself in, and you'll probably miss the last train home, so it'll take you, you know, till two in the morning to get back to suburbia, and you'll be up for work the next morning. I would still turn up and do it because I just wanted to get my name into the magazine and they, they were very good to me. Mm. And I was working at PBA Publishers. I worked for them on and off for about 10 years afterwards for other magazines. So I was always kind of around their orbit. But um, I'm enormously fond of it as a magazine. I think they're, they're a hugely important part of the whole metal scene in this country. And they've recently gone online only, but I really, I, it would be nice if the print version could come back in some regard, I think. Yeah, now, my my history of Kerrang, and I, I don't know whether you know this, but I'm a, I'm a sucker for the 80s, the classic era. And I did, a, I did a huge project on the magazine with about 10 different writers. I interviewed them all. Mick Wall, I interviewed okay. um, Dave Reynolds, I interviewed Malcolm Dome, I inter- uh, Sylvie Simmons, uh, Stephen Shirazi. Oh, the, world, the, world, the, the classic era. Yeah, um, but I jumped off Kerrang!, probably around the mid-90s, because I felt that they were kind of taking the piss out of all the 80s bands that built the magazine. 
Now you're you're big into the glam stuff. You're going into write for Kerrang. What sort of sense did you get of their attitude towards the likes of Motley Crue and Poison and Poison and all these glam bands? Did you get a sense that they like rubbed their noses, looked down at at that kind of music then? No, I, honestly, I didn't at all. I mean, I mean, partly it was... I think that, that one of the things that I found interesting, I'll answer the question in a slightly roundabout way. I mean, I, I didn't get any sort of personal animosity. Um, but I think what's unusual about glam is that most youngers have a very long lead in and a very slow fade out. And I think... Glam is, you know, if you're going to talk about, say, hip-hop, you could have a long, involved argument about what's the first rap record, who's the first MC, when did the golden era come to an end? You know, these things have a long tail on the way in and the way out. Glam is much, much more tightly bookmarked in a way which is very unusual for a musical genre. So I think by the time I was going in there, there wasn't really any active hostility or residual embarrassment that I picked up towards that genre. But I think, to be honest, a lot of that was due to the fact that by the mid-90s, really, that genre had just kind of become invisible. You know, if you think of how ubiquitous the biggest bands at that time were and the speed with which they didn't just fall out of favour, they were kind of scrubbed from the record. You know, there was just no they just kind of cease to function, really, as part of the cultural landscape. And I think um, there's a quote in the book from Dave Savo from Skid Row says that, about when he did the album after Slave to the Grind. And he says, look, you know, it, it just wasn't our time anymore. We could have come out with the greatest material we'd ever written. But, it, you know, if the, the market's not there and the wind's not behind you, it's just going to be stillborn, you know, nobody's going to hear it. And I think that was the case for a lot of those bands. And I think it's what hits, understandably, a lot of them so hard, is that they didn't just fall out of favour. They effectively, the whole scene they were part of, just kind of evaporated. You know, the wider ecosystem around them just wasn't there anymore. Mm. I, I think a lot of these bands, what what definitely hurt them in the end is they put all their eggs in one basket in the US market. And when you look at bands like Leopard and, and um, you know, Bon Jovi, the reason they were able to adapt and survive when all the rest of them failed is because they constantly toured outside of the America. And a lot of the glam bands, especially the ones I think in the late 80s, um, they just concentrated on the US. And once that market went belly up, they were fucked. And I, I think that's also a consequence of both those examples you gave, and I think Beth Lesson particularly, was probably for two, three years before their real imperial phase hit. They had an astonishing work ethic. You know, I mean, they toured in a way that you would associate more with, say, like the hardcore bands in the 80s, and you know, they just crisscrossed the country, crisscrossed Europe, crisscrossed Britain. I mean, pretty much continuously. We look at their tour schedules. They were phenomenal grafters. And I think one of the things that stood them in very good stead for was, as you say, when the market started to go south in the States, they built up very, very strong networks of support in other countries at a time when most other bands had. Iron Maiden would run a lot of clown bands, but they would probably 
see another band that I think also benefited from that. You know, they'd put the groundwork in in Japan, in Eastern Europe, in Latin America. You know, they'd been, they'd really, they'd put the time in and forged those connections with the fan bases there, which I think gave them a longevity that bands that were much more focused just on America and, you know, let's be honest, in a lot of cases, just on LA. They didn't really have anywhere to go when that scene petered out. Mm. Now, in the UK, in in the eighties, um, I remember Top of the Pops was the big music show, and they all these glam metal bands that were big in America, like Platinum. Um, that show just completely ignored them. They were never really commercial, commercially big in in England. I remember the radio shows for the most part. If it wasn't Bon Jovi or Europe or Def Leppard. They didn't play any, they didn't play Slaughter, they didn't play Winger, they didn't play Warrant, um, they didn't play Quite Riot, all, all the big, big bands over here. Um, is, that, is that your memory as well, that they didn't really know what to make of all of this stuff? The, there's two ways of looking at it. I, I think you're right in that bands that were you know, big enough commercially that they could have justified mainstream coverage didn't get it. But I would also say, I think for a lot of the bands, that suited them quite well. And one of the points I make in the book is that one of the things which I think is interesting about glam metal is it was a much bigger concern commercially than people remember. And I think there's one bit I referenced in the book. Since from about 1987, when I was looking at an old billboard chart and it was U2, uh, Joshua Tree was number one. Yeah, huge album, huge album. And then I think seven of the other 10 places in the top 10 are all glam metal records. You know, I mean, it was really, you know, it wasn't like an underground concern. But I think one of the things that metal often did very well was cultivated this idea of being an outsider of music. So I think in a way, a lot of the bands were quite comfortable with you know, Top of the Pops don't want us, Radio 1 don't want us, because to be honest, it didn't dent their sales at all. You know, I mean, they still, they could sell out, you know, they were selling out arenas and big theatres, even with none of that support. So I think in a way, they could kind of have the best of both worlds. Um, one thing I think is interesting with Top of the Pops is, um, over here on BC4, I mean, to be one, two, two, three, 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 They've been repeating every single episode of Top of the Pops in real time, so, you know, on a kind of week-by-week basis. And one of the things that surprised me was metal actually shows up on it far more than I remembered. So, you know, Judas Priest ran it quite a lot. Uh, Twist and Sister have played in the studio a couple of times. Wasp has been on it. Bon Jovi has been in the studio. But the other thing that, and I would say this, you know, as a, a fan and a big defender of these bands is, they don't really work in that environment. You know, the the sense of one of the things that makes that kind of music so arresting visually and sonically is it's really larger than life. Uh-huh. You know, it's like the sense of spectacle it is. And I remember years ago, about six, seven years ago, I interviewed um, Iron Maiden for The Guardian. And Bruce Dickinson was saying about, he made the point that an Iron Maiden gig functions much more like a football match. And he said, we don't work if the crowd's not there. And he's like, look, there's some people who are just really committed musicians and their commercial career could die and they would go and play in a pub every night for the rest of their life and that, they'd be happy with that because they're 
creating music and interacting. And he's like, we can't do that. You know, we don't work in a room with 50 people. We work in a stadium with 50,000 people. Mm. And I think that was a problem for a lot of metal bands because when you see the old clips of them on top of the top, so Twisted Sister are a great example. I think Wasp were on there one week. And it just looks, it looks too small time for them. You know, a bit of dry ice and balloons bouncing around, sweating kids and jumping out of the audience. They just don't, it doesn't connect. It looks ridiculous. So I don't, I think they're right in that I think they were passed over by the mainstream, but I also don't think it did them that much harm in the long run. Mm. Justin, do you remember MTV playing a lot of those videos, though? Because I don't remember them other than Headbangers Ball seeing the likes of Motley Crue and Poison and and Slaughter and Winger and, and, and you know, Wasp on, on regular MTV shows. I'll be honest with you, I have to go back and check this because I'm I was the generation where when I was living in the UK at that point, it was still it was uncommon for somebody to have MTV. Very few people had cable TV in this country. I think, you know, the first wave of probably Sky TV and, you know, the old Squarial DSD systems, they probably only came in when I was about thirteen or fourteen. So I think by and large, I wouldn't have seen that stuff firsthand anyway. Um, what I did notice in terms of going back and researching the book was that for how successful it was in terms of chart performance, um, MTV was not as committed to metal as I would have thought, given that you know it was a very big, you know, it was it was a graph and very visual medium. You know, glam metal works visually as much as sonically. And I uh-huh. made that point in the book is that I think that's the importance of Motley Crue by the second album is there's things before them that sound like glam metal and there's things before them that look like glam metal. But I think they're the first act to really unify everything together. Um, so yeah, and to me, we're not running that there were certain things they would really champion, but within those parameters of originally Heavy Metal Mania, the Snyder hosted, and then the Headbangers Bullslot after that. What they did do that I think was significant, and particularly early on, they latched on to quite odd individual metal tracks and targeted them and championed them very, very strongly. So um, I think when Photograph by Beth Leopard comes out, um, the only track that's getting played more on MTV is Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. You know, that's the level of, uh, I mean, they were on the other heavy rotation they were getting at the time. And, and there's lots of things, I think, you know, Jump by Van Halen was pushed very hard by them. Some of Daisy Rock solo stuff was. Um, and then things like when Kiss did the, um, you know, the famous The Unmasking when they first appeared without makeup on for the first time. And God, they look tired. And that was done live on MTV. So I think they were. I think they're probably their support that was erratic at best. Um, I mean, I, I think you'd have to say they did a better job of covering metal than they did um, anything that was coming out of the black music scene in the 80s. Um, I mean, I think they really were asleep at the wheel on that. Um, mm. Heavy metal, I think, probably just bamboozled them somewhat. I, I think what, the, what, the, what they did over in, in the UK, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is they lumped all the bands as metal. So if you were, 
If you were King's X or Living Colour or Poison or Iron Maiden, you were a metal band, even though they all sound vastly different. Yeah. And that had to hurt, that hurt the scene, I think, because, you know, there was, they just, a lot of people, they just weren't educated enough in the scene and they just lumped it all as one. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, I think, I think one of the tail end effects of that as well, and I think this is partly why when glam comes to an end, I think one of the reasons why there's quite a lot of animosity towards it is that I think a lot of bands in that, if you want to call it out, sort of broader community of metal felt like they were all getting tarred with the same brush. And I think for people who were sort of casual music viewer or music consumer, what tends to catch their eye was the most gaudy, cartoonish, kind of pantomime end of things. So I think, you know, the, the broad impression was everything that's in Kerrang! looks and sounds like Tiger Tail. Now, that wasn't the case. Before, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I think yeah. Started, and I say that in the book, there's things like, you know, Poison around their first album, you know, a little cat dragging and probably Tiger Tails and, I don't know, later on, probably someone like um, Nelson or someone like that. There are certain bands who can said to people who really hated glam metal, what do you think glam metal looks like and sounds like? That was who they would have had in mind. And obviously there, there was, you know, even within glam metal, I mean, and, and, you know, I say in the book, it's a very elastic definition. And I think, you know, one of the issues with it is even bands who are clearly glam metal don't want to be thought of as glam metal. You know, it's like goth bands, you know, no one wants to think they're part of that scene. And I think one of the issues is that the worst end of it, and then some music, you know, even though I'm not going to make a case for a defense, had a kind of halo effect on the wider genre. And I think other bands probably blamed those acts for pulling them down. You know, someone like Skid Row, a good example, I think, and I'm a huge defender of Skid Row. They were a great band in the day, one of the best live bands I ever saw. You know, when they were really firing all cylinders, they were a phenomenal act. And I think they could reasonably be quite agreed that they're, you know, I'm, I'm aware they're still going to going concern now, but what we think of as their peak of their career was effectively scrubbed in kind of 1992 when grunge happened. And I think you could make a case that given the music they were starting to make and where they were evolving to, that was quite an unfair turn of events for them. And I think a lot of bands got caught in the wash like that. I think, Justin, you can make the case for a lot of bands around then that yeah. they were changing their sound anyway, and they were changing their look because, bring up Poison, right? They're probably one of the poster child bands of the whole glam era, right? So you you look at look what the cat dragged in, that album cover, and then open up and say, ah. And then you got the Flesh and Blood album cover where they're, you know, they're, they're definitely glamming down. It's more like jeans and t-shirt kind of look. And then you've got Native yeah. Tongue when they brought in Richie Cotson and it's more bluesy. That A lot of these bands were changing their sound anyway. And, uh, you know, and, but yet people just couldn't let go of that glam metal tag. And it was just, it just killed so many of them. Yeah. I, mean, I make the point in the book, I think one of the things I talk about is that the common shorthand in kind of the received history is 
grunge kill band metal. Now that's not true. I mean, I you know, I was around at the time. I was working in the guitar shop at the time, and you know, my recollection, and I will, you know, I can hand in the Bible. I can you know vouch for this. Is most people I knew who loved Death Letter and Aerosmith bought that Nirvana album. They had no problem with listening to Poison and listening to James Addiction or, you know, listening to Dokken and also listening to Mudhoney. You know, people just thought it was fun, noisy guitar music and they didn't really have an issue with it. Um, so I think it's always been a big sort of full finery. I think, as I say in the book, I think the bands that were really the death knell for glam metal and they didn't kill it off overnight but they gave it what turned out to be a kind of terminal slow puncture with Guns N' Roses. I think when Appetite for Destruction comes out, I think there's such a step change there in the way that they look and feel and sound that it makes a lot of the other bands look overly cartoonish. And I think you're right to say, I think off the back of that, a lot of bands have started to dial down their appearance anyway because you know, times have changed, I think, in the wake of that. So I think though a lot of bands were evolving and moving in a different direction anyway. Um, I don't, Justin, just to break, break in there, I don't think it's just their appearance that they were changing. Like, they were, they were lyric, the, the lyrics were changing too. Like some of the songs yeah. were becoming more serious. The guy, the guys had gone through a few years now of being on the road and being in a band and they had things that that had changed in their lives they'd got married and had kids and they were starting to address all that but for the mainstream just didn't care i, I think also I, I think you're right but I, I would also say it may have been built into I mean, i'm sort of making this theory off the top of my head so bear with me but i think there may be an element that within glam metal that sort of short lifespan and obsolescence obsolescence was a feature not a bug and what i mean is if you look back at something like say british glam metal or british glam rock from the 70s now that had a similarly short lifespan and i think partly because a lot of what made it exciting and attractive to people in the first place with a lot of the same things that make our metal attractive. So this sort of sense of kind of youthful irresponsibility, you know, a sort of living for the moment, it had this real spirit, it had a kind of joy to be But if you look how difficult it was for British glam bands to evolve into something different, you know, someone like Mock the Hooper, a really good example, both time Mock the Hooper break up and they're doing stuff like much more bounding than stuff like Saturday gigs and Sea Diver and things like that, where they were trying to do something more serious, but they were still kind of locked into this genre that basically wanted them doing this kind of like bother boy, hooligan, glam rock, and people could, you know, smash the seats up to and, you know, football hooligans could run around in slayers and tartan scarves to. And I think the thing that made the genre work became a bit of a kind of the cage for it in the end. And I think glam metal suffered some of the same problems with that no matter how much more Poison or Bob Jovi or whoever wanted to start doing something a little more impactful and be taken a bit more seriously, a lot of people didn't want that from them. 
you know, people wanted it to be, you know, what it was in 1986-87. And I think the few bands who managed to really evolve beyond that had to work very, very hard to bridge into something that would give them more longevity. Hmm. Here's the one thing about the glam metal scene that I could never quite get my head around. And this goes, I think, for the music business in general. Once a band becomes massive, all the labels, all they want to do is sign bands that sound like that band. It doesn't matter what genre of music it is, right? So you have glam metal becoming huge. And then you got the Poisons, the Motley Crews, Quiet Riots. um, And then all these other bands get signed towards the, the late 80s and the early 90s. And the labels are looking for all these bands and they sign a ton of them. And then you'll have the label giving out then saying, yeah, but all the bands sound the same. And I'm like, yeah, but you're looking for all these bands anyway. You're signing them all. So you can't say one thing and then completely turn around and say, oh, yeah, they all sound the same. So the the genre is dead. And I'm like, you created it in the first place by signing all these multitudes of bands that sound exactly the same. And to be fair, I mean, that that cyclical nature of record business, I mean, that afflicts most genres that hit pay dirt very fast. I mean, I think they're quite right and interesting because they were, they were sort of the proof. I mean, and, you know, I'm a big fan of quite right. And I think to some degree, they're not given the credit and the due that I think they deserve in the metal story, where to some degree, they were kind of proof of concept in that I think they were pretty much the first one of those LA bands who got signed to a major and Metal Health, the album did very, very well. And I think that made the major labels realise that this scene had really been coalescing for about three, four years, almost kind of under their noses in LA and had got much, much bigger than anyone realised. And I think because they were slightly late to the party, they then realised, you know, we need to sort of play catch up. And I think one of the things that bloated that whole metal market so fast was that you obviously had the bands they were signing, you had a kind of second wave of, let's say, some gen- generic rock bands who went, look, this is where the money is in music at the moment, let's tweak our style to fit in with that somewhat. Hey, this is Jeff Pilson, and you are listening to Focus on Metal. Enjoy. And, you know, and again, I noticed that when you actually look at some of these bands, the number of them, I mean, like Kicks is a good example. I think they've been kicking around since about, like, 1979 or something. You know, they were, uh-huh. they kind of thought of as, like, a mid-late 80s band. But they had, you know, like a long old track record beforehand. And then you then have that third wave of bands, which are really bands from the 70s, like Hark and Aerosmith who are kind of on their uppers at that point. And, you know, either themselves or a very shrewd A&R person saying, look, this generation of fans that you inspired first time round, you could kind of reboot your career on back of this. So, you know, for the record industry, it's happy days because you've got a never-ending supply of these, you know, young new bands coming through who you can put out on the road. And they're all gig things, you know, they're kind of ready to go in fact. I mean, you've then got an ability to rehabilitate a load of like your heritage acts in the 70s and sell them back to the people that were buying them first time around. Hmm. And, you know, I think that partly explains the ferocity with which that market expanded. 
And then uh, really by about 1989, half this stuff's coming through. But then these aren't even metal. If you if you closed your eyes and couldn't see this band, there is nothing that would really tell you it was metal. You know, it's 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 style and substance at that point. Yeah, Justin, what did you make of? Some of the UK bands or artists, I, I, I'm particularly talking here now in the beginning about David Coverdale and and Def Leppard, that they just chased the American market and it seemed to piss off a lot of the uh, the UK fans. And then when you look at Coverdale with the 87 record with John Sykes, he he definitely glammed up. They were a big, big band in in England um, even, bef- even before then, but he completely chased... The, the glam look and the US market. But can you remember back at the time, were you on board with that or did that, those kind of decisions annoy you? Um, to be honest, I was a little too young for that. I, I, I bought those White Snake records from like 87 onwards. I almost had no awareness of them having had really, I mean, that first incarnation is almost like a separate band. I mean, I know, you know some of the same material comes through, but I think they're so different, you almost have to view them as two separate entities. Um, so I knew them originally as the kind of, almost like the Steve Vai era, you know, so like Coverdale, Steve Vai, that very sort of glossy LA thing, the videos. Um, you know, they were, kind of, they were unavoidable at that point. Um, it's interesting, as you say, one of the things that surprised me looking back when I was, I was reading, part of the research for the book was reading a lot of old back issues of, you know, Kerrang and Circus and Sounds and all these sort of things. And there was a real, quite genuine hostility towards, particularly Sounds really had it into death letters um, quite early on. The the perception that they were chasing the American market too hard. Um, You know, there was something sort of, I think it's quite a British thing to the degree that we're, Often as a market, we're more comfortable with people who sort of know their place and stay at a certain level. But I think the sense you get from very, very early on is that Death Leopard generally, and I I suspect this is of Joe Elliott more specifically, were not content to exist at that level. You know, they saw themselves as a much, much bigger concern. And, you know, I've read into the sort of Joe Elliott, where he was saying, you know, can you see that you should have climbed rock fan? And I don't think he had any issue with a band like his functioning as pop stars because, you know, he'd grown up obsessed with, like, Mark Boland and David Bowie. And I think, in a way, he saw he saw them having more in common with, say, the new romantic band in terms of the scope they had for crossing over. And you've got to say, you know, whatever people think of Death Leopard, those records... I think 100% stand the test of time. And you've got to say, they did it. I mean, yeah, they, they set out to be, you know, to make heavy metal dance with the driller. And, you know, they absolutely aged it. I mean, you can't, you know, you can't quibble with the, the level to which they succeeded and the graph they put in to do it. Why can they I think, a slightly funnier concern? I mean, just the thing of, you know, we didn't see our documentary sort of, Coverdale's speaking voice before he goes to America and then his speaking voice after so, you know, beforehand he sounds like a bloke from Red Car in Yorkshire and yeah. he sounds like Walter Moore's Brother. I mean the, the voice is incredible. I mean that that's um, I mean I'm aware I know he had, you know, vocal issues that he, he had, you know, medical issues in his voice that he had to work around and I think that partly explains the shift in style. 
But again, I think I wouldn't knock him for what he did. I think, you know, they had a long old shift of plugging away with that first incarnation of Whitesnake and it had got them to a certain point. I know at that point was, you know, they were headlining Donington here, they were, you know, big in mainland Europe. But there's something limited about that kind of music. You know, that, that music is going to exist at the level of, you know, USO or probably where the Scorpions were at that point or where Spin Lizzy were. It's not going to go fully over the top. And I think Chuckerdale was probably at a point in life where, you know, he was looking at where those other bands were going. And essentially, you know, the old adage in Martin, you know, find a crowd and walk in front of it. And I think, you know, Coverdale could see, look, there is a level where you stay being a band like UFO and you're playing at, you know, the Rainbow in Finsbury Park for the rest of your life. Or you reboot and you go to America. And to be honest, you know, I think to a lesser extent, it's kind of what Ozzy Osbourne had done in the early 80s. I think, you know, he did that phenomenal run of solo album. He did like, um, Disney World's Diary of a Madden and Bark at the Moon. I think the step change that goes on in Ozzy sound between the end of Black Sabbath and I think I say in the book, you know, the sound becomes very West Coast. You know what I mean? It, it, it literally feels different. And it has different musicians and structurally very different. You know, I think, I'm sure David Coverdale has looked at what Ozzy Osbourne has done and gone, you know, he went from being something so quintessentially British to really becoming an LA act and reap the rewards of the result. Hmm. And, you know, I, couldn't, I don't think I could knock him for doing that. Justin, why do you think that a lot of the 80s, English in particular, glam bands, and you've already mentioned Tiger Tales, but I'm just looking at image-wise, and I remember there was Terraplane, um, there was a band called FM that tried the, the hard rock with, the, yeah. with, that, with that look. And then, of course, you got Thunder. And they all came out like, like mid to late 80s. And Leopard and, and Whitesnake blew up. But the bands that followed them from the UK after that um, didn't really make a smash at all. Do you have any particular insight as to why, you think? Um, I think there's two answers. I think there's a broader one that I don't think the time was quite right. Any of them. I mean, I think Thunder are an interesting one. Again, they've forgotten to some degree, you know, outside of metal now. But I remember seeing them when I was a kid at Hansley Bogan. It was the first time they played there. You know, it was when they'd gone, you know, it suddenly got really, really big before Backstreet Symphony came out. And they they were a real kind of grafting band. But already they were moving, you know, to your point earlier about the way that bands were evolving away from the pure glam scene. You know, Thunder came on, you know, they were very stripped down looking. It was like, you know, blue jeans, white t-shirts, leather jackets. They didn't have all the kind of excesses that, you know, you associate with the glam thing. And they were kind of in the white snake mold. You know, they were like a really solid kind of blues metal band. And they were a real jobbing band. You know, gig card. They didn't have a look that worked on MTV in a way that Death Leopard really did. You, know, you look at Death Leopard, they've got a very, very worked out look. You know, they're all dressed the same. Joe Elliott and his Dana, great looking front man, you know, good looking, big guy. You know, they had all the matching outfits, the Union Jack vest and shorts, those David Mallet videos for the single. 
And I think they grasped in a way that they've later banned him that this works visually or it doesn't work at all. And I think that, that was Death Record's crucial insight. That, and, you know, and they were all coming on stream just when MTV was desperate for content in a way that later bands weren't. But the most simple answer is it just it stands and falls on the songs. You know, Def Leppard are absolutely top flight songwriters. You know, they're up there with, um, I mean, look at the best material that came out of there. You know, the kind of stuff that Jason Child was writing to Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue. The stuff Def Leppard is writing and the complexity of what they were producing with, um, on the mental blank, sorry, the producer, um, Mutt Langer. Uh-huh. The complexity of that production and the sophistication of what they were doing with songwriters, they would have succeeded in any any era. They, would, they could have just retold those songs. And you see that the way that, you know, Mariah Carey has covered Death Letters, Taylor Swift has covered Death Letters. You know, those songs are, somebody will be covering them in 50 years' time still when we're long gone. You know, they are just absolutely top draw, nailed on top songs in a way that Under didn't have, FM didn't have, Tiger Tail didn't have, you know, Rothschild didn't have. And you can only get so far on the image. And ultimately, you know, I think there are some brilliant, brilliant songwriters. I think Blackie Lawless from Wasp, I think, is hugely, hugely underrated. Yeah. Somewhat. You know, I think some of what he's writing is up with the best stuff that. T-Rex were doing 10 years earlier. You know, really unique sound, real grasp of kind of songwriting and dynamics. And again, that's what this stuff stands or falls on. And the bands that we still remember today because they crossed over, you know, into uh, into a more mainstream market, they had those nailed on three-minute songs and the others didn't. Yeah, but Justin, do you think, though, that the reason these bands didn't really... break it big in the UK is because the UK fans were okay with the American bands coming over because a lot of UK people might look at the American and say, you know, everything is big over there, everything is extravagant, but they didn't really want some of their own to have that image as well, because for want of a better term, they'd look at them and say, you look like a right pillock, but I'm okay with Motley Crue coming over dressed like that. Yeah, I, I know, I think you're completely right, and I think Again, to use a sort of analogy from another genre, I think it really took probably only in the last 10 years, let's say, what have you on the term, it rap, hip hop, you know, MC based music. It's only really in the last 10 years that Britain has found a way of verbalising that and forging its own real identity. You know, there were there were always very, very talented British artists working in rap and hip-hop, but they were always seen as being poor relations to what America was doing. And I think the same issues befell a lot of metal bands here, that essentially so much of the genre, and again, and I made this point in the book, I think there were a lot, an awful lot of parallels between where hip-hop was in the 80s and where glam metal was. You know, they're both kind of cartoonish, oversized, larger-than-life, fantastical genres. But I think part of the problem with that is you have to be big and larger-than-life to work in that arena. And a lot of stuff that came from this country was just seen as being 
too small time, too prosaic. And, you know, even just on a really functional level, it's like, I remember the kids, you know, reading about these bands, and you're like, you know, well, like, Izzy Stratton's from, you know, Indiana or whatever, and it kind of sounds glamorous and exciting. If you're reading about a band and you're like, they're from Luton or the back end of Cork or whatever, you know the place, so it doesn't seem as exciting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I, think, I think the distance makes it easier to... Um, Exotified someone to a degree. If you know that, you know, some guy with an amazing stage name is actually Dave from Runcorn, it seems immediately kind of less uh, less exciting. It's probably partly why Coverdale, you know, lost the uh, the rich Yorkshire accent because it was, uh, you know, it had those kind of associations with, you can't really be like a sort of stadium straddling rock god if you sound like from the home of that. So <laughs> Yeah, that was probably, uh, probably part of the rationale there. Yeah, Justin, I just got a couple of questions before I leave you go. So, what was your first glam metal concert? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, right, that would have been uh, on Jovi on the New Jersey tour. So, I'd say 1989, Wembley Arena. Um, and, you know, I was, I don't know, 13 at the time. Pretty, you know, pretty strong meat for a 13-year-old. Um my vibing memory of it is that they started with, uh, I think it was Lay Your Hands On Me, you know, with the big sort of like washes of kind of skin from the orchestra sort of into it. And then there's a massive kind of wall of pyrotechnics and John Bon Jovi got blown up to a hole in the stage and sort of arrived on uh, on stage. And I thought it was just like the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. But it was, um, yeah, they were, they were fantastic. I mean, they were really, you know, they were nailing it at that point. That was... Probably, I think that was the second leg around of that New Jersey syndicate tour. So, yeah, 89, I think that would have been. Um, one of my first concerts was 88. It was Bon Jovi. And Lita Ford opened. Now, I don't know whether she opened on that concert. God, God, I can't remember who opened it. I've got to see her. Um, John, top of my head, I think it may have been the Dan Reed Network. Oh, I loved, um, I loved them. Oh my God, I love them. I saw and I saw them the same year also opening for the Rolling Stones at Wembley Stadium, which at the time everyone was saying, oh, this would probably be the last tour the Stones ever do. And, you know, still <laughs> are. But um, there was, uh, I, I think, yeah, I could be wrong, I think it was the Dan Reed Network, because I've seen them seeing about three or four shows at that point, but they were like the perennial support band. Um, you know, at that point, you know, they were all kind of, because I think, you know, a lot of the bigger bands really liked them and liked what they were doing. And you know, what they were doing was quite unusual. Um, and I think they suffered a little from not being, uh, not being, they were quite difficult to pigeonhole as a band. But, um, but I bet, I'm assuming that would have been probably the first leg of the same tour you saw then, I guess. Yeah, I think the very first show of that New Jersey tour was in Dublin and I was at it. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, I was tremendous. I was 16 years old. <laughs> now, one of the things you have in the front, yeah, one of the things you have in the front of the book, um, your sister took you to Donington. What year was that? That would have been uh, 91, I think. So that was, um, so thankfully not that awful year in 88, which ultimately um, two young men died by tragedy a whole lot of young men were injured um, so 
there was 88 of when all that awful incident um, to write about in the book, which was literally genuinely very upsetting to write about. And, you know, I was reading the coroner's reports and things. It was awful. Um, 89, I think, was cancelled. 90 was a sort of quite a tentative comeback year. For 90 is really the last year with quite a heavy ground presence. That was um, Whitesnake headlined that year with Steve By. Uh-huh. And the following year was... Um, Right, let me, let me see if I can do the line-up from the top with, um, it was, uh, Black Rose, Queensryche, Motley Crue, Metallica, fresh releasing the Black Album. So I think Enter Sandman is out at this point. The Black Album isn't. So it's that little interregnum. And then ACDC headlining. Okay. That's, that's, a, solid, that's a solid year. I remember Black Crows were great. Queens, I didn't really know any of their stuff. And, you know, it's kind of weird seeing that to be quite ambitious, atmospheric music at, like, one in the afternoon when it's daylight or whatever. It didn't really work. Motley Crue, being fairly terrible. Um, and then Metallica were amazing. HMDC were incredible. There's actually there was a live DVD or a video of that show mm. released. It's all on YouTube. Um and it's not to not being that I think I was just about to turn 15 at the time. I actually loved it. I mean, this was the most exciting thing I'd ever been to. My older sister um, was a goth and took me under great suffering. So I really owe her one for uh, giving up her day and taking me there because I was too young to go for myself. Okay. Um, and you look back at the footage of it and you're like, my word, this is the way that gigs looked before the kind of modernisation and health and safety and the sort of corporate era of festivals that we know now. It basically looks like something from Game of Thrones. You know, it's just like tens of thousands of this churning mass of people and bonfires and circle picks and I was incredible. I mean, it was genuinely you know, quite overwhelming for a 14 year old. But um, yeah, I'm eternally grateful to my sister for uh, taking me to that. Yeah, I, I only ever made one Donington, and that was in '87. And that was. Uh... Let, 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 let me try and guess. '87 would have been. So Iron Maiden headline '88. '87 mm-hmm. is. Give me one name for the bill and see if that triggers it. I'll give you the opener, Cinderella. Cinderella, I So, Cinderella, that right, we didn't, that's not the year bad news played, because that's like. No. 87, I'm going to go. Is that right to make a roll right here? No. Who's the headliner? Bon Jovi. Oh, that's what I'm talking about. Don't you the leopard on the bill right here? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to have one more guess. The Halloween on the bill, or is that 86? That's, that's 88. I'll tell you the bill. It was. Oh, God. It was Bon Jovi, Dio, yeah. uh, Wasp, Anthrax, Metallica, and Cinderella. What a weird lineup. Yeah, but that's what was great that's about Donington. Um, yeah, but that's, that's a really, really odd split. Like, that's quite an interesting snapshot of music starting to go in sort of two directions at that point. There's a thing, I think there was a tour in the States, I think, earlier that year, where I think it was 
Was it Metallica headline that they had like Wasp and maybe Armored Saints or Nuclear Attention support bands? And it sounds like it was like absolute carnage. And they had three groups of fans who all hated each other. But yeah, Cinderella and then the sort of thrash element together was quite uh, quite an odd one. But um, yeah, I remember it just being a bit like um, a sort of battle of the Somme. You know? The weather was pretty good, but it was a sort of bonfires of kind of burning trash and all the pits flying around everywhere. But it was, um, yeah, it was a good experience. But, mm. um, yeah, I think it was the weather hot. I think they were very weather dependent, basically. You don't want to be there when the club uh, kicks in. Yeah. Justin, I, I just want to ask you before I go, what was the ACDC video you tried to get into as an extra and couldn't? Ah, right. This is uh, the video for um, Are You Ready? So it's also the second single off the Razor's Edge, so after Thunderstruck. This ring a bell? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So in 1992, when Thunderstruck comes out, I think the follow-up is Razor's Edge. And they put a, uh, a little advert in Kerrang! the week before saying, uh, we're looking for extras to come down to be in the video. But it was, I was in, I think I was at school, I was in my fifth year at school. And it would have meant bunking off school, which I was far too well brought up and polite and well behaved to do. So I missed out on it. Um, whereas uh, my good friend Jonathan Spence, like a lifelong friend who I should give a shout out to, was far more formal than this group than me. He bailed out of school for the day, got down to Shefton Studio, got into the video, and I think he's just about visible in the front of the video somewhere, but it's the one where it's set in a kind of prison camp and they're shaving everyone's head and shaving uh, the ATVG logo into the back of their heads. So uh, if you want to be extra volunteers in there, you could get your head shaved and they do. It's a great poster for the single with uh, the logo shaved into the guy's head like a buzz cut. But uh, they gave everyone these life-size cardboard Gibson SGs to kind of tout in the air during the filming. And I think John still has his somewhere. So that's quite the uh, quite a ATVC collector license. He mm-hmm. was uh, yeah, he he bailed out of school and headed down there. It's my eternal regret that I didn't. Nice, nice. So Justin, tell everyone where they can uh, get in touch with you or get and pick up a copy of the book. So the book is called Nothing But a Good Time: The Spectacular Rise and Fall of Guy Metal. It's out now, published by Unbound. Uh, you can get it from Amazon. Uh, Waterstones online borders or directly from unbound.com. Uh, but if you just Google Justin Quirk and nothing ended in the possibly, nothing but a good time, um, and that should come up. But it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's after about six weeks now, but the, uh, the response has been far in excess of anything that I hoped. It's, um, yeah, it's been nice to finally get it out there in the world. And I just sort of felt really, really strongly that it, it's a hugely important time in music and not just what it says about music, but I think the way the music evolves and develops says so much about the culture of the time and the entire history of America and the eighties. And I've just, I've been kicking this idea around for years and thinking, I really don't think you can fully tell the story of what happened in America between 81, 82, and the end of the decade without going into this music, because I think it's so emblematic of what was going on in the country at that time. And it's a bigger story, and I just felt it deserves to be treated seriously and talked about seriously rather than just written off as a joke, which I think it has been. 
and I hope the book goes some way to addressing that. But um, thank you very much for having me on today. It's been a real thrill. I'm a big fan of the show. So uh, thank you. No problem, Justin. Do you know, just before I leave you go, do you know there's a book coming out in the next couple of months, a big book on hair metal over here with, with a big publisher, and it's called Nothing But A Good Time? Do you know what? I didn't until mine was out because they only announced it after mine. So thankfully I've beaten the punch. Um, I think that, as far as I know, is um, it's an oral history yeah. of Netflix, uh, kind of Studs Turkle style sort of retelling. Um, so it's different enough. I feel like there's enough clear water between what I'm doing and what they're doing. I don't think we're cannibalizing each other's books at all. Um, I think the guys who've written it are. I think they're all Rolling Stone writers or circus writers, maybe. But, yeah, um, I think you're right. For me, what I've seen of it and who they've had talking to them, um, I'm sure it's going to be absolutely brilliant. And, uh, you know, I think the, the world is big enough for, uh, for both books to exist. And I think, honestly, you know, it's if you go through this time without a single book really coming out and telling the story seriously, and then two come out without within six months of each other, it maybe suggests that there's something in the air and maybe people are starting to reappraise this stuff and realising that, you know, beyond the pyrotechnics and blacky laws of exploding cod peas <laughs> and, you know, the odd regrettable Tiger Tales record, there was something really interesting going on there and it's worthy of going back and looking at properly. Hmm. All right, Justin, well, I'm going to leave you go. Thanks for giving me so much of your time. Richie, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And um, if you need anything else, um, you've got my email, just drop me a line. And um, thank you enormously for the support. Mate. It's a really small book. It's a little independent publisher. And this kind of thing really, really makes a difference. It really moves the needle. Perfect. Thanks, Justin. We'll have a good rest of the day. All the best, sir. All right, bye. Okay, bye now. There you go. Big thanks to Justin Quirk for taking a crap load of time to talk to Richie all about nothing but a good time. The spectacular rise and fall of glam metal. And as he had said, you know, you can get that at uh, Amazon, over at Unbound, lots of different places you can pick up that book. Not only the physical copy, but you can also get uh, ebook editions as well. And you can also keep up with all things Justin Quirk by heading over to justinquirk.com how damn convenient is that and if you're digging the twitter you can follow him at justin d quirk and of course for those of you that are over in the uk you can always enjoy justin's writing as he pops up in uh, all different uh magazines and papers and all that good stuff so that will do it for another week here not really sure yet what is on the agenda for the second week of december Richie's thrown a couple of things my way already. And, uh, you know, it's always COVID affecting things, whether or not we can get a chat together and all that good stuff. So a few things, again, kind of up in the air, but guaranteed a show is on the way to your little metal ear holes as scheduled next week. Same place, same time. Just like I said, nah, I'm not sure what the hell it's going to be yet. Could be another author, could be an artist, uh, could be an entire thing of chat, don't know. But uh, guaranteed, like I said, be back again at you next week as we start to round out the dumpster fire that is 2020 as uh, we round that out and also then slowly head into our annual winter break. But anyways, for this week, that's it. 
There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is well and truly done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, continue being safe out there. And as always, until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.